As years go, 2020 has been memorable. A global pandemic, a bitterly contested US election, and the fast-looming prospect of a no-deal Brexit. On an industry level, seismic change is occurring. Commercial office space across the country lies empty as people work from home. High street woes have been exacerbated by the rise of online shopping, while hospitality and after-hours venues reel from the effect of social distancing and stay-at-home orders. Throughout all this, though, one constant has been the courts. Early on, they made the transition to online hearings and the steady stream of property-related cases from tribunal to Supreme Court level has continued. As has become customary, Jess and I have cogitated, debated and eventually formulated our top 10 property law cases from the year. You're listening to Sarah Jackman and Jess Harold, and this is EG's top 10 cases of 2020. And as Sarah has suggested, this year cogitating those cases has been no easy task. First, we have a few honourable mentions. Uh, starting with Dill versus Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government, a quirky Supreme Court planning decision over what one might think would be a straightforward to resolve question, whether a pair of large lead urns were subject to listed building control. Having triumphed at the very last for his client after a long, arduous struggle through the courts, Richard Harwood QC told me that Dill is a reaffirmation of the right of the citizen to challenge decisions which directly affect them as a defence to potential proceedings. Next on the nearly list, R on the application of rights community action versus Secretary of State for Housing, Communities and Local Government, a judicial review challenge to the changes to permitted development rights and use classes introduced in response to the pandemic. The case created considerable uncertainty in planning and had the court struck down the government's emergency measures, it would definitely have landed high up in our top 10. However, the challenge was dismissed and as a result, the status quo, or rather the new normal, remained unaffected. And a couple more Supreme Court decisions do warrant a mention because of their status, but didn't quite make the cut for our top 10. In Stofflin Covey Grondona, the court upheld earlier rulings that the participant in a mortgage fraud was not barred as a result of illegality from suing her solicitors for their negligent failure to have a transferred property registered in her name. The court took the view that allowing her claim would not enhance the prohibition of mortgage fraud while denying it would conflict with a number of important public policies, not least discouraging solicitors' negligence. And in Peninsula Securities Limited versus Dunn's Stores Bangor Limited, the court rejected a claim by a shopping centre owner that a restrictive covenant that effectively bars competitors to the anchor tenant of a Northern Ireland shopping centre was unenforceable as a restraint of trade. A small boost in a very difficult year for beleaguered department stores and other shopping centre anchor tenants. But now, without further ado, let's start counting down from number 10 to the top spot. At 10, dropping from second place in 2019 is Fern and others v Board of Trustees of the Tate Gallery. A significant one for certain, but because the appeal was dismissed, it doesn't quite soar as highly this year. I'll deal swiftly with it, as it was a high profile case. Did residents of luxury flats at Neo Bankside on the south bank of the Thames have a nuisance claim against the Tate Modern over its public viewing platform in the gallery's new extension, the Blavatnik Building, built in 2016? The walkway on the 10th floor offers panoramic views of London, but also allows visitors to stare straight into the Neo Bankside flats. At the High Court last year, the judge raised eyebrows with his finding that a breach of privacy could, in principle, found an actionable nuisance claim. However, he dismissed the resident's case on the facts, finding they had created or submitted themselves to a sensitivity to privacy by purchasing apartments with floor-to-ceiling windows. 
something he described as a self-induced incentive to gaze. In February, the Court of Appeal dismissed the residents' appeal and even stripped them of their Pyrrhic victory on the principle of the thing. It found that the overwhelming weight of judicial authority was that mere overlooking was not capable of giving rise to a cause of action in private nuisance. The court identified important policy reasons for not extending the law, including the difficulty in applying an objective test for determining whether there had been a material interference with the amenity value of the flats, and the fact that planning law offers other protections for owners of land from overlooking. In relation to invasion of privacy, they took the view that this was an area which required a detailed approach that could best be achieved by legislation rather than by the courts. With little likelihood of Parliament coming to residents' rescue anytime soon, it seems that, for now, people in glass houses are best not throwing legal stones. However, word has just emerged that the Supreme Court has granted permission to appeal to the residents. So, perhaps Fern can rise back up the charts again in 2021. 2020 has been another year in which telecoms cases have featured prominently, both in the courts and in EG's legal coverage. So it will come as little surprise that taking our number nine spot is a telecoms decision. Cornerstone Telecommunications Infrastructure Limited versus University of the Arts London. It's an extensive decision of the upper tribunal in which the claimant's code operator, CTIL for short, applied for rights under paragraph 20 of the code to install and operate apparatus on the roof of a building belonging to the University of the Arts at Elephant and Castle in South London. Paragraph 20 of the code enables the tribunal to impose an agreement conferring code rights on an operator and an occupier of land if the conditions set out in paragraph 21 are met. However, the building was to be demolished as part of a wider redevelopment of Elephant and Castle, and the university was not the developer. It had agreed to sell the building in question to a development company and to rent it back temporarily while it fitted out a new building to be constructed for it by the developer nearby. It was a condition of the agreement that the university would deliver vacant possession of its existing building free from any third party rights and telecommunications apparatus to enable the developer to demolish it. Because the university did not intend to redevelop itself, it was unable to invoke paragraph 21.5 to resist the imposition of code rights sought by an operator that was seeking a home for apparatus removed from land that also formed part of the redevelopment. As a result, it relied on paragraphs 21, 2 and 3 of the code, which enabled prospective grantors to resist the imposition of code rights if they will suffer loss that cannot be compensated in money, or if the prejudice that they will suffer is so great that it outweighs the benefit that the public will derive from the use of the site. The tribunal accepted the university's argument and the operator's application to impose an agreement under paragraph 20 was dismissed. Commenting on the implications of the case, Emma Humphreys, partner at Charles Russell Speechley's, said, It is tough to pick a top code case from 2020, as this field of litigation remains very active. At first glance, the University of the Arts decision seems helpful for landowners, as the tribunal allowed an intended redevelopment by a third party to defeat the application for code rights. However, Landowners will be concerned by the tribunal's guidance on how it is likely to approach disputes over the detailed terms of code agreements. This approach continues to prefer to give flexibility to operators in the interests of facilitating the rollout of this type of communications infrastructure.
But certain elements of this approach seem questionable, such as the decision not to require operators to specify the code apparatus installed under an agreement. As Emma mentions, telecoms remains a very active area of litigation, and this case is by no means the end of the story. No fewer than three appeals are currently scheduled for 2021, with the Court of Appeal due to hear the appeal in Cornerstone Telecommunications Infrastructure Limited v Ashlock in January. Archiva Services Limited versus AP Wireless 2 UK Limited, a strong contender for this year's telecoms pick, will follow with a hearing by the Court of Appeal in May. And at a yet to be confirmed date, the Supreme Court will hear the appeal in Cornerstone Telecommunications Infrastructure Limited versus Compton Beecham Estates. Doubtless, we will be revisiting at least one of these cases in our 2021 review. At number eight, Tracarol House Limited versus Ransfield involved the no-fault eviction procedure for assured short-hold tenancies under Section 21 of the Housing Act, a controversial provision which the government has proposed to abolish. Section 21 offers landlords a straightforward way to recover possession, provided they have given two months' notice in writing. But certain other hurdles have been placed in the way over time. And Section 21A states a landlord cannot serve a Section 21 notice on a tenant at a time when when the landlord is in breach of a prescribed requirement. These prescribed requirements include the need under Regulation 36.6 of the Gas Safety Installation and Use Regulations 1998 for a landlord to give an existing tenant a copy of the most current gas safety certificate within 28 days of the gas safety inspection. Sounds simple, but here the landlord, Dracarol House, failed to give new tenant Patricia Ransfield a GSC before she entered into occupation of the flat. It did so later, but after it served a Section 21 notice on Ransfield seeking possession of the flat, she defended the claim by arguing that the Section 21 notice was invalid. In the county court, Ransfield was successful, the court holding that a failure to provide a tenant with a GSC before the tenant went into occupation could not be remedied by late compliance. Therefore, the landlord was debarred from serving a Section 21 notice. Understandably, the landlord took the matter to the Court of Appeal. It found, by a majority of two to one, that late compliance could come to the landlord's rescue in this position, as long as the GSC came before the Section 21 notice. So even if a landlord fails to provide a tenant with the GSC prior to the tenant going into occupation, it can still preserve the right to use Section 21 by handing over the GSC subsequently, to the relief of landlords everywhere. One question does, however, remain. Here, the gas safety inspection had been carried out, so the GSC was in existence prior to occupation. What happens if the landlord hasn't had one carried out before the tenant occupies? Will that lead to an absolute bar on the service of a Section 21 notice? We'll have to wait for another case to resolve that one. At seven, we have a recent Court of Appeal decision, Southwark London Borough Council versus Ludgate House Limited, a case that centred on whether Ludgate House, a property at the southern end of Blackfriars Bridge in Southwark, SE1, and the former home of Express Newspapers, was liable to pay business rates between July 2015 and May 2017 when it was occupied by property guardians. Under such occupancy, property owners have traditionally been exempt from paying empty property rates and the upper tribunal in the first stage of this litigation concurred, finding that the owner of Ludgate House was not liable to pay non-domestic rates for the property, which had a rateable value of almost 4.2 million during that period. However, The London Borough of Southwark, which collects rates on the building, objected and asked the Court of Appeal to overturn that decision. In a ruling handed down on 4th of December, a three-judge panel agreed, 
finding that because of the nature of the contract between the guardians and the freeholder, which meant that the guardians were more like employees than tenants, the building remained liable for business rates. In a sneak peek of her legal note on the case that won't actually be published until January, Alison Colby writes that the decisive factor was who exercised general control over Ludgate House. The guardians did not have keys to the building itself and the terms on which they occupied were heavily restricted. The guardians could be compared with lodgers who are not in raceable occupation because the owners of lodging houses retain general control over them, even though their lodgers may have keys and occupy their rooms for their own purposes. But she adds that the court refused to consider whether the guardianship scheme was unlawful because it involved the use of the property as an unlicensed house in multiple occupation. That point could have serious implications for such schemes and it remains to be seen whether a future case will require a decision to be made. Turning to number six, we have Beaumont Business Centres Limited versus Florala Properties Limited. Rights of like cases are always interesting because so few come to court. Beaumont did, and its impact is likely to be significant. Here, Florala decided to increase the height of its building on Moorgate and London Wall by 11.25 metres, affecting the light in Beaumont's building. Florala claimed that correspondence between the parties showed that Beaumont was not genuinely interested in protecting its rights of light, but simply wanted to use them as a means of exacting a ransom payment from Florala. However, the High Court ordered that Florala must remove those parts of its property that infringed Beaumont's rights of light. Importantly, in so doing, it confirmed that an injunction is available as a remedy in a rights of light case, which had been a matter of major debate. One thing to note, however, the Florala premises had been sublet and that tenant was not a party to the proceedings. As a result, unless Beaumont is able to persuade a court that the tenant should be bound by the injunction as well, it will have to settle for damages. The court assessed negotiating damages at £350,000. James Souter, a partner at Charles Russell Speechley's and an expert in right to light issues, told us that confirmation of the injunction point nevertheless meant that the judgment will have a significant impact on the approach to rights of light. Summing up the case, he said that Florala had argued that where rooms were already badly lit, a small reduction in light shouldn't amount to a nuisance. However, the judge gave this short shrift and said that whatever the starting position, if a development makes the neighbouring property substantially less comfortable and convenient than before, it would amount to a nuisance. With no evidence of an appeal in progress, this decision adds an extra layer of jeopardy for developers and is sure to affect the advice given to both parties in any right of light dispute. Making an entry at number five is Capital Park Leeds PLC versus Global Radio Services Limited. Now, this was a high court decision concerning vacant possession and whether the tenant who wanted to exercise the break clause in its lease had complied with the provision in its lease to provide the vacant possession of the premises on the break date. Often the source of dispute in these cases is whether the tenant has extracted everything that should have been removed to comply with the provisions in its lease. But in this case, a landlord claimed that its tenants have removed too much from the property. The lease in question had become vested in an assignee as a result of a corporate acquisition, but was surplus to requirements and a break was subsequently sought. The assignee stripped the premises, including of the ceiling grids and tiles, floor finishes, windowsills, boxing on columns, fan coil units and connections, floor boxes and sub-mains cables. It then embarked on negotiations with the landlord to establish whether a financial settlement could be achieved in lieu of reinstating the premises before returning them to the landlord. The negotiations proved unsuccessful 
and because there was insufficient time to reinstate the premises before the break date, the assignee returned the keys to the landlord, leaving the work unfinished. In the High Court, the argument centred on the definition of the premises, with the judge finding that the tenant had not given the landlord back the premises because so many of the landlord's fixtures, which form part of the premises, were missing. John Rowling, commenting on the case in an article for the EG, said, Vacant possession should be a simple concept. In broad terms, there should be no substantial physical impediment to the landlord's immediate use or enjoyment of the premises when they are handed back. Typically, this has meant the tenant should ensure that nobody is present, that there are no third party rights, that keys and alarm codes have been handed over, that it is clear to the landlord that access is available to them, that chattels have been removed, etc. But case law keeps getting in the way and making things more complicated. Unfortunately, Capital Park has not made things simpler. He went on to say, Perhaps achieving vacant possession can no longer be considered to be a question of removing at least everything that needs to be removed. Perhaps it is now a question of hitting the Goldilocks zone. Not too little, not too much, but just right. At four, we have the Financial Conduct Authority versus Arch Insurance UK Limited and others, or the FCA test case for short. This was litigation very much arising from COVID-19, and the FCA brought it urgently to court seeking guidance on whether businesses can claim on their business insurance policies for losses relating to the pandemic, in particular, government-mandated or similarly forced closures of premises. Such is the pace with which the case has been handled that a leapfrog appeal to the Supreme Court was heard last month. Judgment is awaited, and it seems likely that it will be the first major decision of 2021. With the hope that the highest court doesn't catch us out by giving judgment before Christmas, we shall instead consider the High Court ruling that earned its high place in our rundown. The litigation sought to test the meaning of the wording in 21 different policies, with some 370,000 policyholders said to be affected, and potentially £1.2 billion at stake. The High Court gave a lengthy, detailed judgment giving guidance on the specific wording used in each policy, and a straightforward summary is not easy. In the wake of the judgment, the FCA said the judges had backed its arguments on behalf of policyholders on the majority of key issues. Thankfully, we at EG have benefited from the views of a couple of legal heavyweights on the implications. Jonathan Seatler QC argued in his moot point column that the decision may make it easier for affected tenants to avoid paying their rent during the pandemic. He explained that a lease will usually contain a rent cessor clause, triggered where the premises have been damaged or destroyed by an insured risk and the FCA decision significantly eases a tenant's and landlord's task of reviewing the landlord's insurance policy and assessing whether the landlord is covered, adding that in many of the 21 sample policy wordings, the court came down on the side of the policyholder. He acknowledged that the rent cessor argument is not fully made out yet, but notes that an important hurdle has been cleared. I should, of course, point out that Miriam Seatler, taking the opposing view in our regular Moot Point series, argued that the decision offers no such certainty, that much will be left to the particular facts of individual businesses and that major hurdles remain in the way of tenants' rent cessor claims. Writing separately, Guy Featherston Hall QC and Julia Petrenko felt the judgment offered a mix of mainly good but some bad news for the insured, with the result turning in some cases on whether the government had imposed a requirement that businesses should close, as in the case initially of most retail and entertainment uses, or simply given advice that workers should stay at home, as in the case of most office uses. In their analysis, this results in an odd position, where landlords' insurance policies usually include cover against loss of rent following a pandemic, even where there is no damage to premises, meaning that a landlord will have loss of rent cover, 
which will in principle cover the precise situation which has arisen this year. The insurer will not therefore mind paying out for that sort of loss. The lease will also have a rent cessor provision, but only where there is damage to its premises. And therefore, not only will the tenant not be allowed to cease paying rent, but also the landlord will then have no loss of rent for which to claim. We await the Supreme Court's decision with interest. And so we arrive at the top three. Taking that all-important third spot is the Supreme Court decision in Alexander Devine Children's Cancer Trust versus Housing Solutions Limited. Listeners will recall that this was a restrictive covenant case in which a central issue was the correct approach to the public interest requirement on an application for the modification or discharge of restrictive covenants under Section 84 of the Law of Property Act 1925. Developer and Housing Solutions predecessor in title, Millgate Developments, finished building 22 homes on land adjoining a children's hospice near Maidenhead, Berkshire, in 2015, despite a restrictive covenant dating from the 1970s, which expressly prohibited development. It then applied for the modification or discharge of the restrictive covenants, which was resisted by the hospice owner, the Alexander Devine Children's Cancer Trust. The upper tribunal, Lands Chamber, ruled in the developer's favour that the covenants could be overridden because they were against the public interest in impeding the continued existence of much-needed social housing. However, the Court of Appeal reversed the decision following a legal challenge from the Trust. It found that having been presented with a fait accompli, the upper tribunal had misapplied the public interest test. The Supreme Court dismissed the appeal, though for different reasons. Commenting on the case in the EG, Guy Featherston Hall QC and Emily Windsor, barristers at Falcon Chambers, said, The outcome of the case is entirely consistent with a number of other property cases where the courts have refused to allow legal rights to be created by a claimant's deliberate wrongdoing. They go on to say, In future, applicants making retrospective applications will likely have to rely on some form of mistake or misunderstanding, and the prospects of success will be slim unless the application would have succeeded if made in advance. Taking the silver medal position is Cardtronics Europe Limited and others versus Sykes Valuation Officer and others, a Supreme Court decision given in May, which brought considerable relief to the owners of supermarkets and other retailers after years of uncertainty. Tesco, Sainsbury's and the cooperative group were among the parties fighting for a ruling that cash machines or ATMs at supermarket sites should not be separately assessed for business rates with some £500 million in business rates refunds said to be at stake in relation to many thousands of sites. The Supreme Court unanimously agreed with the Court of Appeal, which found in 2018 that ATMs should not be separately rated. Previously, the Upper Tribunal had made a distinction between ATMs accessible inside a building and those accessible from outside, finding that while internal ATMs should not be assessed for business rates, external ones should. The Valuation Office Agency pursued the matter all the way to the highest court, with the crucial question being who is the rateable occupier of the site of a cash machine whose operator is a different company from the occupier of the premises in which it is located. Giving the court's judgment, Lord Carnworth said that retailers retained occupation of the ATM sites, even though they had conferred on the banks rights which substantially restricted their use of those sites. He said that both parties share the economic fruits of the specific activity for which the space is used, as the presence of the ATMs furthers the retailer's general business purposes and provides them with an income. John Weber, head of business rates at Colliers International, who had long been concerned over this issue, told us that this was a massive relief, not only for the supermarkets involved, but also for the consumers who need access to these machines. 
He said many would have suffered if the judgment went the other way and retailers ripped the ATMs out of their stores to save extra rates bills, denying many in the local community free access to cash. There was a real fear that if the VAOA had been successful, he said, not only would it have led to the ripping out of ATM machines, but it would have also opened up the floodgates to assess up to 400,000 vending operations, which would have been calamitous for both retailers and those operators. Brian Johnston, UK head of real estate litigation at Denton's, which acted for Sainsbury's, Sainsbury's Bank and the Cooperative Group, agreed. He heralded this as a significant victory for the public and their ability to access their own money through the ATM network, adding, if the court had allowed the appeal, many retailers would have had little choice but to reconsider the viability of offering free ATM services for the benefit of their customers. This could have had a negative impact on communities where an ATM in a shop is the primary method of accessing funds. But with retailers due rebates in the multi-millions, he warned that there would be a significant logistical exercise involved in handling around 34,000 appeals that had been in a state of paralysis for years. That's an exercise that has doubtless kept the VOA rather busy this year. And finally, we arrive at the number one spot. Taking pole position in EG's top 10 cases of the year is a decision from May, which was keenly anticipated by those practicing in the residential field. It is, of course, Duval versus 11 to 13 Randolph Crescent Limited. The key question in Duval was whether the landlord of a block of flats in Maida Vale was entitled to grant a license to a lessee to carry out work which would breach an absolute covenant contained in a lease of the flat, where the leases of other flats on similar terms required the landlord to enforce covenants at the request of a lessee of one of those other flats. These types of covenants are common, and so the issue before the Supreme Court was an important one. It unanimously upheld a landmark 2018 ruling of the Court of Appeal that the landlord was not entitled to grant such a licence without the consent of the other lessees. Joanne Wicks QC of Wilberforce Chambers, who represented the appellant in the case, had argued before the court that the matter was of very significant practical importance to thousands of residential lessees and that the Court of Appeal decision below had had far-reaching and unforeseen consequences, causing very real practical problems in the management of blocks of flats. Speaking to, to the EG after the decision, she explained the significant issues caused by the decision, explaining that landlords which have given a covenant to lessees promising to enforce the covenants in their neighbours' leases have, in doing so, given away the ability to allow any tenant to depart from the strict terms of their lease unless all the other residents in the block agree. She said, in the case of large blocks or where neighbours are not on friendly terms, this is a significant limitation and may be the source of dispute and contention. Landlords should consider and take advice on how to protect themselves in the future if they're approached by a lessee requesting a licence and what to do about licences they have granted in the past. It is felt that Deval removes a lot of the flexibility that previously existed between landlords and tenants and could have major consequences. Landlords could potentially face claims by lessees for breach of covenant arising from licences that were granted in the last 12 years, albeit those lessees may have issues proving that they have suffered any loss. There may be less transparency in the management of blocks by landlords and managing agents as a result to, present the, to prevent these types of claim arising. And landlords may now insist on any lessee who is requesting consent, giving it an indemnity against losses it suffers from granting consent to something that would otherwise be a breach of an absolute covenant. 
And Nicola Muir, barrister at Tanfield Chambers, who wrote in the EG for us, offered another interesting thought. This year, it might not be unreasonable for a landlord to give permission for a tenant to work from home, even if it may be a breach of an absolute covenant not to use any part of the demise premises for business purposes. The implications of Duval are likely to keep lawyers and judges busy for the next few years. And so concludes our top 10 cases for the tumultuous year that has been 2020. Look out later this week for a follow-up special on our top three cases where we ask experts in the field to offer their reflections on those cases. A huge thanks to you all for tuning in today and for following us throughout the year at EGI and of course through the hard copy of EG. We will be back in January with our predictions for 2021 and in the meantime wish you all a very happy Christmas and New Year. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from her. Goodbye. Goodbye.